We've had a good day today. It's great to be together one more time to study from God's Word, and I hope the things that we talk about tonight will be helpful to us and beneficial as we strive to understand God's will in our life and live it out. Uh, tonight, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about why we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Um, it's important that we talk about this because this is fundamental and foundational to our faith. Without a good understanding of why we believe the Bible, then it's going to be difficult for us to have confidence in applying it in our lives. And so tonight I want to talk about why we believe the Bible is God's Word. I want to present evidence to us why we believe it is God's Word. That evidence will be both internal and external. So internal coming from the pages of the Bible, external coming from outside the Bible, and evidence that shows us that the Bible is, in fact, the inspired Word of God. The Bible claims to be inspired, and that's important for us to understand that the Bible makes this claim that it's inspired. You know, it would be hard to claim that the Bible is inspired if it didn't in and of itself claim to be inspired. It would be sort of uh, futile to do that, but the Bible does make those claims. Now, we have to ask the question, what do we mean when we mean inspired? Because the word inspired is used a lot of different ways in our uh, language. We might say that, the, that something is inspired like an artist or a poet would be inspired. An artist, when he uh, sees something beautiful, he wants to paint that or photograph that. We were on our way uh, here this morning, and there was a field with some freshly cut hay all rolled up in nice uh, uh, rolls, and there was someone out there photographing that. Someone was no doubt inspired as they drove by that. Hey, they saw it and said, that's beautiful. I want to stop and photograph that. Um, a poet maybe goes through some type of traumatic experience, and what do they do? They write a poem that reflects uh, their experience that they've been through. They've been inspired by that traumatic experience. But that is not what we mean when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, because God would have minimal control over what the message is in that instance. Uh, God wouldn't have a lot of control over what was written if, if it, we were talking about it being inspired like an artist or a poet. Others might propose that, well, the Bible was inspired by God giving general ideas to the writer. Sort of like when you were in high school and the teacher told you, I want you to write a story about some topic, and it's up to you to to flesh that out as to how you wanted to write that story. And so some say, well, maybe God just gave the thoughts for the people that wrote the Bible. He's told, for instance, he's told Paul, Paul, you need to write a chapter in 1 Corinthians about love. Would you write a chapter about love? And so Paul just sort of took it off from there and went on about his way. God gave him the idea to write about love, and so Paul wrote about love. Or maybe uh, some of the Gospels uh, accounts, maybe God said, I want you to write about the life of Jesus. You guys just sort of figure it out and make it up as you go. The problem with that is then we can't be very uh, confident that the things that are written are really what God wanted to be written. We can't have a lot of confidence that everything in the Bible is from God if God just gave the general ideas. Maybe Paul got off a little bit when he wrote about love. Maybe he was not exactly right. Maybe you veered off track. We can't have confidence in what is written if, if the inspiration is just by the general ideas. But instead, we believe that God gave every word of the Scriptures 
that the inspiration of the, God, of the Bible is every word that is there is there because God wanted it to be there. That's the kind of inspiration we believe in, and that's the kind of inspiration that the Bible itself claims. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture, that means everything that we have here in the Bible is given by the inspiration of God. All Scripture, everything that's written, everything that's here is given by God, and it says it's given by the inspiration of God. The inspiration of God. That word, that Greek word that is translated inspiration is theonoustos. Inspiration of God is, is the Greek word theonoustos. Theo, meaning God. Noustos, meaning air, referring to air, which literally means God breathed. When we talk, it takes air to talk. We have to breathe to talk. And when God gave us the Bible, Everything that he gave is, are the literal words given by God. Everything that we have is, is written based upon what God wanted it to be. Now, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that it is inspired by God, and the Old Testament makes this claim. The Old Testament makes the claim that every word is inspired by God. In Deuteronomy chapter 18... In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God is speaking to Moses, and he says this in a prophetic passage about Jesus, but notice what he says about the message that he would give. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, beginning, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. God said he was going to put his words in his mouth. He goes on and says that he would speak the words in his name. The things that he was going to speak would be the things that God wanted him to speak. This isn't the only place in the Old Testament where this type of inspiration is claimed. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, here's what David says. David says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. When God inspired people in the Old Testament, he put his word in their tongue. He told them the words that he wanted them to speak. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, Jeremiah says this about God's inspiration. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words... In thy mouth. God told Jeremiah the actual words that he wanted him to use. He didn't just give him an idea or a concept to use in his, in his uh, prophecy. He gave him the actual words that he was to speak. So the Old Testament claims to be verbally inspired every word by God. The New Testament does this as well. In Jer Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, for I am not come to destroy but fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass in the law till all be fulfilled. 
Jesus said one jot or one tittle would not pass from the law. He came to fulfill the law, and the Old Testament law wasn't going to be done away with until he fulfilled it. He said not even one jot or one tittle. What does that mean? A jot is the smallest Hebrew letter. The smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the jot. The Greek word for that, by the way, is iota. Jesus would have said the same thing that we say about that. Not one iota of the Old Testament law is going to pass away. Not even one of the smallest letters is going to pass away. The tittle was a little uh, mark that distinguished one letter from another, maybe like a little apostrophe or something, just a little stroke of the pen. And Jesus says not even one little stroke of the pen is going to pass away till all is fulfilled. That means Jesus understood that the Old Testament law was inspired down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest stroke of the pen. Those letters and those little strokes of the pen were there because God wanted them to be there. That's how Jesus viewed the inspiration of the Scriptures. There's a picture of what some of that writing looks like. It also looks like some of the prescriptions that Mark was trying to get written back in the day. But those are, that's a Hebrew uh, writing there. And the smallest little strokes of those things were inspired by God. I'll tell you something else that Jesus uh, showed us in his understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures reiterating this idea that Jesus was convinced that every part of the Old Testament was there because God wanted it to be there. Jesus made arguments based upon the tense of a verb. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, he's dealing with the Sadducees who denied the resurrection of the dead. And notice the argumentation that he makes. He makes argumentation based upon the tense of a verb, showing that he believed that even the smallest details of the law uh, were inspired by God. In Matthew 22, verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Je Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says, God said, I am, speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they had died, showing that God knew these folks were not dead forever, that they were still in existence in the spirit realm. And Jesus based his argumentation based upon the tense of a verb. Jesus didn't believe that just general concepts were there because God had inspired them, but he believed God inspired even down to the word. Paul did this as well in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. He looked at the singular form of a noun and made an argument based upon it. In Galatians 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Paul was making the argument based on the, the plural or singular uh, sense of a, of a noun. Paul believed and Paul understood that the Old Testament was inspired down to the very, very word. You could make arguments based upon the word, knowing that that's the word God wanted to be included there. Paul understood that. And Jesus promised his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Jesus says when you get called into trial. Don't even worry about the words you're going to speak because 
I will have the Holy Spirit inspire you as to what words you should speak. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, notice how Paul describes this inspiration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but with the whole, which the Holy, spirit, or the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Paul says we've been inspired. We've been given the things to teach you that God wants us to teach you, not by just the ideas that the Holy Ghost teaches, by the words. The very words were given by God that they were to teach others, that they were to write down in the Bible, down to the very words. Also, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul makes this claim again. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. These are not the words of men. The things that are written in the Bible are not the words of men. Paul says they're not my words. They're not the words of any man, but they are the word of God. God gave us down to the very word the things that we are to have here in the Bible. The New Testament claims that it is inspired of God word for word. So we have the Old Testament making this kind of claim. The New Testament makes this claim as well. The Bible claims to be inspired. But what I tell you that just because a book claims to be inspired doesn't mean that it's so. There are many books that claim to be inspired. The Book of Mormon claims to be inspired. The Quran claims to be inspired. We have the Bible claiming to be inspired. How can we know? How can we have confidence that this is, in fact, inspired by God? Well, first off, I want to tell you the unity and harmony of the Bible prove its inspiration. The unity and harmony of the Bible prove its inspiration. The Bible was written by approximately 40 different writers. These writers were from different backgrounds. They had different backgrounds. The, Moses was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was in royal, the royal family. Amos, on the other hand, was a herdsman. Luke was a physician. Ezekiel was a priest. Matthew was a tax collector. These all had different backgrounds, these 40 different men. They had different levels of education. Moses would have been trained, no doubt, in the, the greatest education that you could get in the land of Egypt. Amos, as a herdsman, probably didn't have a lot of education. This would have given the writers different viewpoints, different backgrounds. But when we put their works together, there are no contradictions. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. Imagine what changes in a person's understanding and view of the world in 1,500 years. Imagine what changes just in a few hundred years in our history. And yet when we put their writings together, the writings are unified, harmonious, with no contradictions. They were written from different geographical locations. Moses was on the Sinai Peninsula. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. 
Paul was in a Roman prison. Again, these would shape your viewpoint and your understanding, but there are no contradictions when we put their writings together. They were written in different languages. The Old Testament written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament written in Greek. And yet all of these things, all of these factors that would work against the idea of the Bible being able to be written and put together in a, in a fashion where there would be no contradictions, all these things are working against it. But when we put the Bible together, there are no contradictions. How can we explain this? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 again tell us, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, which the Holy Ghost teaches. These things had to be inspired by God. The Bible had to be inspired by God for all of these different writers from these different times to be able to put the works together and have such a unified theme. I'll tell you something else that tells us that the Bible is inspired. Again, we have to have proofs. Just because the Bible claims something doesn't make it so, we have to have proof that it is actually inspired. I'll tell you, the flawless accuracy of the Bible proves its inspiration. The Bible is flawlessly accurate. Historically, the Bible is very, very accurate. The Bible is not a history book. It's not designed to be a history book, but if it's from God and it mentions things in history, those things would have to be true. God wouldn't include facts that weren't historically accurate. And every time something historically is mentioned, the Bible is accurate. The Bible is supported by archaeological claims. As folks get in the ancient lands and start digging around in the dirt, they don't find anything that contradicts the Bible. But on the other hand, every time they make a discovery, it verifies what's in the Bible rather than contradicts it. The Bible also is flawlessly accurate in its scientific explanations. Again, the Bible is not a science book. But again, if the Bible is given to us by God, the one who created the natural laws that we all experience, we would expect that the Bible given by him would be scientifically accurate. It would have to be. And the Bible is scientifically accurate, and it's accurate scientifically in things that would have been contrary to what was the common knowledge and understanding of the day. You remember that for years many thought the world was flat, and we would expect that if someone who was writing something about the earth and its shape in those days, if they were going to talk about the shape of the earth, they would write that it's flat. But instead, they wrote that the earth is round. We also remember that there were lots of different theories as to how this large planet could be supported. Some thought it was on the back of an elephant, I think. Some thought it was on the back of a strong man who was standing on a turtle. And you would expect that if someone was writing in those days when those scientific misunderstandings were in place, that they would have included those when they wrote about how the earth was supported. But instead, the Bible says the earth is supported on nothing. Again, contrary to the common understanding of the day. And the Bible talks about things that hadn't even been discovered when it was written. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is one such example. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Look at verse 7 in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. 
to the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Sounds a lot like the water cycle, doesn't it, kids, that you learned in school? Don't want to bring up bad memories about school right now since it's summer, but you learned about that in school, didn't you? The water cycle. How the water falls on the earth, it rolls down in the rivers, down to the oceans, it evaporates, and it goes back. You know, that wasn't taught in school back in the time when this was written. That wasn't understood back in those days. And yet Solomon wrote about the water cycle in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. We, the earth receives lots and lots of water. Why doesn't the ocean fill up? You know, the Mississippi River carries an enormous amount of water. I don't know how they figured this out, but someone has uh, concluded that at the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River is dumping 6 million gallons per second of water into the Gulf of Mexico. 6 million gallons of water per second. I don't know if they got a lot of measuring cups out there and just measured real fast how they figured that out, but 6 million gallons a second, and it doesn't fill up. It goes back where it came from just like Solomon said. The Bible touches on the subjects of medicine, of physics, astronomy, biology. It's not a science book, but every time it mentions any of those things, it is scientifically, scientifically accurate even before people of that day would have known these scientific facts. How? The words that are given are not what man's wisdom teaches, but what the Holy Ghost teaches. That's the only example of it. The Bible is flawlessly accurate. I want to tell you something else that will show us that the Bible has to be inspired by God, and that is the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. The Bible has numerous prophecies in it, and when we see their fulfillment in history, we can have confidence that the Bible is inspired by God. In fact, this is something that causes doubters and skeptics great consternation when they see the prophecies in the Bible and the detail of how they've been prophesied. Skeptics want to deny the Bible, but when they see these prophecies, it makes it very hard for them to do that. One such prophecy is the prophecy concerning Tyre. It was made by Ezekiel in 590 B.C. about the destruction of Tyre. And here's what Ezekiel said. In Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 3 through 7, Ezekiel said that many nations would attack Tyre, the first being Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar. This was fulfilled in 572 B.C. Now, if you do the math, you'll see that that was only 18 years in advance of Nebuchadnezzar attacking, uh, attacking Tyre. And one might say, well, that was just a good guess. It'd be sort of like someone saying, I think Russia is going to attack a Eastern European country in the next 18 years. Well, maybe that's a good guess. Could have just been lucky. But I want to tell you, the prophecies go on. In Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 18, uh, Ezekiel said that Nebuchadnezzar would receive no spoil from the city. And again, that was fulfilled in 572 B.C., when the people from the city took their wealth and they fled to a nearby island just offshore of Tyre. Now that's a harder one to guess, isn't it? That you would receive no spoil from the city. When you attacked a city in those days, that was sort of the goal, is you'd get some spoil and you'd plunder it. But he didn't get any plunder from that city because they escaped with all of their wealth. Now, it gets even more detailed. 
In Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 4 through 12, it says that the dust of the city of Tyre would be scraped, the area would be left like the top of a rock, and the ruins of the city would be cast into the sea. Now this one gets to be very weird. You go in and you destroy a city. Typically what you would do is just leave the rubble. You don't care about it anymore. The city of Tyre would be scraped clean like a rock. Not only would it be scraped clean like a rock, that the dust of the city and the, the, the uh, rubble of the city would be cast into the sea. This was not fulfilled when the city was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in 572 B.C., but instead it was fulfilled in 332 B.C. when Alexander's army used the ruins of the city to build a causeway out to that island where the residents had fled with their wealth. They scraped the city clean. They cast the rubble into the sea to build a causeway. That causeway is shown in this picture, the remnants of that. That island was about a kilometer offshore, and there was a sort of a bar there that was about two meters deep. And so what they did when they came in there, said, we got to get out to that island. How are we going to do that? Well, we got all this rubble. We'll scrape it clean, and we'll dump it in there. And they built that causeway. I think it's something like 200 feet wide and a kilometer long. And there's an aerial view of it from the 1930s. Ezekiel had made that prophecy years in advance, 160 years in advance. He had made that prophecy. 200, sorry, 260 years in advance, he'd made that prophecy, and it was fulfilled. We could look at the prophecies of Christ and the details about his life and, and the prophecies that were made, numerous extensive prophecies that, that were made. Here's just a few of those. That he'd be born, the city that he'd be born in, in Bethlehem. That he'd enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, but that money would be returned. That he would, his hands and his feet would be pierced. His garments would be divided. He'd be numbered with the criminals. All the details here that are listed. His bones would be broken. All of these prophecies, and they were fulfilled in exact detail. We believe the, prophecy, the Bible is, is the Word of God because of all of the fulfilled prophecies. The Bible claims to be inspired. Its unity and harmony prove its inspiration. Its flawless accuracy proves its inspiration. And its prophecies fulfill, uh, prove its inspiration. And so we have the Bible. We have to decide then, is the Bible from God? Or is it not? Charles Wesley proposed three alternatives. He says, we've got this amazing book. Is it from God or is it not? He said, there really are just three different possibilities. The Bible could be the fabrication and formulation of good men or of angels. Or it could be the fabrication and formulation of bad men or devils or it could be from God. He says that's really the only three alternatives. Either it's from good people or bad people or God. And he, he concluded that it wouldn't be from good men because he said it could not be the invention of good men or angels for they neither would or could make a book and tell lies all the time they were writing, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when it wasn't, was their own invention. He says, 
good men wouldn't make this book with all the lies in it, saying it's from God when it wasn't. He says, we can throw that out. It can't be from good men. He also concluded that it couldn't be from bad men or devils because he said it could not be the invention of bad men or devils for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell to, for all of eternity. He says bad men wouldn't try and help people be good. He said it couldn't be from bad men. He says then it has to be from God. He says, therefore, I draw this conclusion the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. The Bible, given its characteristics, must be from God. We believe the Bible is inspired by God. But then that begs a question. Do we still have a reliable copy today? If the Bible was inspired by God thousands of years ago, that's one thing. But I need to have confidence that what I have in my hands today is still that, that I can have confidence that this is still a good representation of what God inspired. Do I have a reliable copy today? Well, we must admit there are no original copies that we can reference. We don't have any original copies. We have no original copies, but we have an extremely large number of manuscripts that we can look at to verify that what we have is an accurate copy. On your screen, on the screen, I have a listing of several historical writings, when they were written, and how old the oldest manuscript is of those, and how many of those manuscripts we have. Now, I'm going to pronounce some of these names with authority, like I know what I'm talking about, but I have no idea how to pronounce some of these. Um, but these books are not in question. For instance, Caesar's Gallic War, that was written between 58 and 50 B.C. The closest manuscript we have of that document is 900 years later at 850 A.D., and we have 10 manuscripts of that writing. No one doubts that we have an accurate copy of Caesar's Gallic War even though the oldest manuscript is 900 years after the first one was penned, and we only have 10 of those. Tacitus, History and Annals, and uh, Thucydides, History. Tacitus, Histories and Annals was written in 100 AD. The oldest manuscript we have is 800 years later at 900 AD, and we only have four and a half of the histories and 12 of the annals. No one denies that we have an accurate copy today with that few number of manuscripts written that far after, or copied that far after the original. Um, Herodicus history was written in 400 BC. We don't have another, we don't have a manuscript copy of that for 1,300 years, and we only have eight of those. Again, no one denies those. But look at the Bible. The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 AD. We have fragments dating from one, the 100s and 200s A.D. Within 100 years, we have copies of those. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,000. We exceed the number of manuscripts for the New Testament by hundreds over others that nobody doubts. We can be confident that what we have is accurate. The Chester uh, Betty... Uh, biblical papyri uh, contains all four gospel accounts. That's from the early 200s A.D. 
John Ryland fragments uh, containing uh, parts of the book of John were dated only about 40 years after John wrote it. And we have numerous fragments dating within 50 to 25 years of the original. We can have confidence that what we have today is accurate based upon all of the, uh, the numerous manuscripts that we have. And since we have such uh, confidence in that, and there's other uh, details that, we, that uh, we have about the manuscripts. I've got a document, if you're interested in that, I'll make you a copy of it, uh, of, of different facts about the inspiration of the Bible, why we can have pr uh, confidence in that. If you'd like a copy of that, let me know. And so then that leaves us with one more question. Since we can have confidence that the Bible is God's Word, what's our obligation with respect to that? And that is, first of all, that we need to read and study it. This is a unique book. This is an incredibly valuable book. It is inspired by God. We can have confidence in that. And so why in the world wouldn't we be interested in reading and studying the message that God has for us? We have something special. We need to study it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. God tells us what he wants us to do. He tells us how he wants us to live our lives. Paul says, don't be foolish. Be wise and understand what God wants from you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The scriptures are complete. They tell us everything that we need to know in order to be pleasing to God. We need to be studying them. I'm going to tell you, we need to be giving attention to this and not to the opinions and doctrines of men. We don't need any creeds of men, do we? If this is complete, if this has all we need, then I don't need any kind of creed or any other man's doctrine. This has all that I need. We need to be reading and studying the Bible. And then finally, we need to be obeying it. If it's from God, if it's God's message to me, then why in the world wouldn't I do what it says? In John chapter 14, verse 21, He that hath my commandments, well, that'd be me and you, wouldn't it? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus says, if you got the commandments, which we all do right here in black and white, then we need to keep them. In John 14, verse 24, he that loveth me uh, not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which she hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Do we love God? Do we love Christ? If we love Him, we'll keep His commandments. And if we don't, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 7, has a dire warning for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Those who don't obey the gospel, who don't obey the inspired word of God that we have, will be punished. If we believe that the Bible is God's word, then why in the world wouldn't we be studying it? And why in the world wouldn't we obey it? Well, I hope the things we've talked about tonight have been helpful. Again, this is fundamental and foundational to our faith. 
We've got to have confidence that we have God's will revealed to us, and I think we can be very confident based upon the things that we've talked about tonight and other details that we could look at that we have God's word, and we can be very confident that it has been preserved, that we have an accurate copy of it today. We need to be submitting to it in our lives, and if you're not tonight, we would encourage you to make correction before it's too late. If there's anything we can do to help you, let us know while we stand and while we sing.